It was a Tuesday. Under the sign of Gemini, the U.S. president was George Herbert Walker Bush, Republican. In that special week of June, people in the U.S. were listening to Paula Abdul and in the U.K., Color Me Bad. City Slickers, directed by Ron Underwood, was one of the most viewed movies released in 1991. But much more happened that day. When the alien gets around to unzipping her jumpsuit, it'll be impossible to see what's underneath. I've been through this before, her argument with Harold Flint, all the usual ways a woman has to get past indifference, none will work. And when she unzips, she won't offer her body, her inhuman perfection, but rather what she'll offer is her absence. And even this will go wrong. There have been suicides in the UFO research community since the saucers landed on June 11, 1991. Of course there have been suicides. Imagine your whole life taking place on Christmas Eve and then, out of the blue and after 30 years, it's Christmas morning and Santa has left you a present. The forces that act to preserve the present moment reduce our ideas to the level of ideology. Yesterday's social and cultural critics are today's mere mascots for various intellectual fashions. A person's identification with this or that philosopher or school is more likely to be determined by his or her demographic profile than by reason. By consequence then, while we can easily follow the after images of Nietzsche or Marx on Twitter or Facebook, following the arguments and reaching conclusions requires a struggle against the present. It is that struggle that we hope to facilitate. Thinking is not the intellectual reproduction of what already exists. Our task then is not to discover what is best in established thought, but to think, and to go beyond what appears to be understood. Yes, but spirituality is important to me. I've always felt that we humans are insignificant maggots scuttling across the muck of the universe and that life itself is just a meaningless moment of agony between the suffocating stench of the womb and the foul decay of the grave. Hello and good morning. It's Monday. I'm William Morgan and this is 42 Minutes, a production of Thinkbook Radio and distributed by thethinkbook.com. Today is the 21st day of September 2015 and this is our 198th broadcast. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at SyncBook and at Sync42. If you missed last night's SyncBook Plus member hangout, no worry. You can soon find an audio document on the conversation at thesyncbook.com slash member content. Also be sure and check out our latest title from Syncbook Press, Audiomancy. Book two of the Astro Music series by Ezra Sanzerbell. And as a final note, be sure to mark your calendar on March, March 23rd to the 27th, 2016 to attend the Tree Fort Sync Summit. Not only will Syncbook Radio be covering the music festival, but we will be programming it as well.
Stay tuned to SyncBook.com or TheSyncBook.com for more information and stay in the loop. Today, in the shadow of the towers, we'll determine what happens after the saucer storm. And we'll do so in a speculative post-9-11 world. Hello, Doug here, and today we are reconnecting with Douglas Lane, novelist, blogger, and podcaster. Mr. Lane is the publisher of Zero Books and host of the Zero Squared podcast. He has joined us a number of times on 42 Minutes, such as episodes number 99 and 115, and you can find those in the SyncBook Plus member archive. His first novel, entitled Billy Moon, was published by Tor Books in 2013, and his second book, entitled After the Saucers Landed, arrived this past August from Nightshade Books. He is also the editor of a work of post-9-11 speculative fiction, also from Nightshade, featuring the likes of Jeff Vandermeer and Cory Doctorow. It is called In the Shadow of the Towers, and it became available at the beginning of this month. More information about these works from Mr. Lane can be found at his website, douglaslane.com. It's always a pleasure to be speaking with him. How are you doing today, Doug? I'm doing well. I, I quite enjoyed the collage of uh, material you presented there at the beginning of this uh, podcast. Well, let's start with that collage. Uh, what what part sounded interesting? Well, I just enjoyed how it, th- these pieces of quite different works uh, all fit together, and I especially enjoyed the quote from, uh, I think it was it was not really John Kerry, but it was uh, uh, some New York Times columnist um, being quite unfair to John Kerry and putting those words in his mouth about spirituality and the meaninglessness of life. Well, explain that a little bit to our readers, our listeners. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, well, gee, I wish I could remember the name of the, I think it was David Brooks. Yes. Who... Um, wrote this column uh, during the campaign between uh, Kerry and, and, and Bush and um, was, was just sort of parroting their styles during a debate and uh, had one of the moderators of, of, a, of a fictional debate between Bush and Kerry ask Kerry about um, his spirituality or, or, or something like that and Kerry's reply was to say that he was very spiritual and he always thought that life was um, a, a, a cruel trek from cradle to grave, um, something along those lines. And um, and I think I quoted that in in the uh, anthology of, of uh, short stories about 9/11. So, um, but it was it was fun to hear it pop up again that uh, dark nihilistic sort of modernist. Uh, meaninglessness about uh, kind of a Beckett-like quote from, from John Kerry. Although, you know, again, just to be fair to the guy, he, he never really said that. But uh, Right, but I, then the, the irony was that that kind of nihilism then really became something it like had a moment after 9-11. Right. Well, I, I think that 9-11 sort of forced people to, to think about um, the the, the a lot of people ended up in churches after 9/11. People who would, you know, were maybe uh, Christian Sunday Christians. Only. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Easter Sunday Christians only. And and um, you know, they would go to church because they felt adrift in that moment and and wanted a spirituality that really they couldn't have anymore. Um, so yes, I think 9/11 forced us to. to 
to look at the fact that God was dead. <laughs> yeah, that we're going to die, and that we people do you know die in mass numbers, and that life uh, in the universe is sort of uh, indifferent to our existence, and um, and why you might be able to go through most of your life you know, focused on the small picture, you know, your individual career or your individual love life or you know, whatever you're playing and watching on television that night or what have you, it, there is this uh, looming question of what it's all about and, and uh, sort of a large cultural answer, which is, you know, it's not about anything. We, we've, we live in the age of the cosmos rather than the age of uh, God. So, um, so I think the, the, the thing about that John Kerry quote is that uh, it, it supposes that uh, Kerry would say what we all, you know, at least all of us who are sophisticates, uh, believe. Um, but, you know, uh, David Brooks' point was that, of course, that was completely unacceptable in terms of for a president to say, and that, you know, that kind of sophistication is to be looked down upon or, or mocked. Did you happen to watch any of the True Detective seasons? I did. I watched the first season of True Detective. Um, I haven't watched the second one. How How's the second one? Have you watched that? Yeah, a lot of people really didn't like it. I didn't hate it. I, I enjoyed it. I came to enjoy the characters and the what the story was doing, but it definitely wasn't the, of the same, the same quality as the first one. There's something kind of mysterious the first that true the first season of true detective is important to me and the reason why i watched it um actually i watched it quite late uh you know it's because as a new publisher for zero books i was inheriting a relationship to that series that um uh you know was quite unexpected one of our authors um uh, Eugene Thacker wrote a nihilistic book called In the Dust of This Planet that was uh, quoted on True Detective and that started the book's upward spiral of viral success. Um, it ended up on the back, the cover of that book ended up on the back of uh, designer t-shirts and jackets um, and uh, in a hip-hop music video um, uh, featured on uh, uh, NPR uh, radio show um, called. I, it went on Radio Lab and. Radio Lab, yeah. On the media, and also, on, I think. Glenn Beck. Yeah. Glenn Beck announced him. And oh. that was when we really hit it. <sighs> You've made it. I was, <laughs> was Glenn Beck is on TV telling, telling the world that you're you know, a no good progressive commie fascist Satanist or whatever he said. Um, the book is going to sell well, and it's continued to sell well for us. And, but it started with True Detective and how the nihilism of True Detective was um, fit nicely with the nihilism of that book. Let's talk about Zero Books a little bit. So, There was a time period where we were looking at a lot of uh, success from individuals who started on the Internet as a hobby and actually made it their profession. And you, you've been able to do that. So, I mean, what is that like, and how did that come to pass? Well, it took a long time. I mean, I was a writer of short stories and, and novels um, before I was the publisher of Zero Books, and, and I had been working to have a career and had, had 
at least a professional relationship with the field for a while. So I was publishing professionally and making some money from it, but not making uh, my living from it. And uh, after doing uh, the Diet Soap podcast for several years, I gained um, a listenership, who uh, many of whom were well-connected in the realm of philosophy and uh, kind of was hooked up with Zero Books as an author. Through that, I was recommended that I try writing for them. And and then when there was um, a vacancy at Zero Books, uh, there was a sort of a political battle there that ended up with the, the current... Uh, crew of, of readers and the publisher, uh, Tariq Goddard, um, leaving, and I, I offered to to take their place or to take Tariq's place and was hired. So that was based on the relationships I developed with my listeners uh, at the Diet Soap podcast. So uh, that's why I was kind of a known entity and and was able to, to land that gig. And then I, I started podcasting for them as well as deciding which books would be published and working with authors and and uh, being the, the publisher and publicist for, for Zero Books. So there was definitely a lot of hard work involved, but no small amount of serendipity either? Right. Yeah, it was like I worked for five years. I did not work with this in mind, working for Zero Books. Uh, people, There was an opportunity that came up, one of my uh, frequent guests and listeners to Diet Soap suggested I apply and then recommended me. And uh, and I had already started to work with Zero Books, hoping to form maybe a secondary podcast for them. And uh, because of all of that, I, I landed the, the publishing uh, gig there and uh, started working full-time from home. Which the big perk of, of being an internet uh, professional is that you can become a complete shut-in if you'd like, and uh, you know never, you know never leave home at that point. <laughs> to have the groceries shipped to you from this online uh, group or, or that one, and uh, and never have to see the light of day again. So uh, I work to, to actually leave the house now and uh, remind myself to shower regularly and that kind of thing. But. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, so did, what about what about being paid for diet soap? Did did that happen at any point in that trajectory? I was paid by my listeners through, through donations, so it was not. It was a a nice uh, perk of podcasting to make. I would say it more than paid for itself, um, and it uh, my relationship with my listeners paid for uh, a book tour and the publication of a of a nonfiction book. Um, because I ran Kickstarter campaigns, which uh, many of the listeners to Diet Soap helped fund those. So, but I, I was not earning a month-to-month living from from podcasting. I, it was a supplement to, you know, I was working at the Oregon Symphony um, for those years. One of the things that I read during the introduction was potentially the mission statement for Zero Books. Yeah. Could you talk about that um, a little bit? Well, you know, Zero Books has a manifesto or a mission statement now, and it's printed in the back of, of every or most of our, our books. I think every Zero Book has this printed there. And it was written by, I think it was written by Tariq Goddard, and it may have been written by Tariq Goddard and Mark Fisher and a few other people uh, who worked at the previous in the previous regime. Um, 
and it's quite good and it's quite strident what they wrote originally. Uh, but I wanted to change it for, for a number of reasons. One is just to mark that there's a new zero books, uh, that it, there is a, a change. But also because the original manifesto um, seemed to suggest that the reason why we're having such difficulty maintaining any kind of vibrant intellectual culture, especially on the left, uh, is because of um, bad people working for corporations and uh, in the academy. Timid academics and Weasley corporate types are, are the, the at fault for suppressing an otherwise vibrant intellectual culture. And I just don't think that's the case. I think that uh, um, what's actually happened is more complicated than that and that, uh, that we're all more complicit in our own suppression, basically, and that, uh, uh, that the system itself, the economic system and the cultural system that's on top of that, um, tends to reduce ideas down into commodities, and um, which I don't use that word in the, in the rewrite. I'm still re revising that my version of this or our new version of this. I've sent it out to uh, C. Derek Barn and Ashley Frawley and Alfie uh, Baum, um, who are uh, readers at, at Zero Books and work with me in a select which books we're going to publish. So we're, so we're revising it. But um, the main point of my diff, this new take uh, on the manifesto is to say there's a system of, uh, that, that suppresses thought, that separates us, uh, our thoughts from our active lives, and that this, uh, the system has to be struggled against as we try to reason our way towards a different kind of life, that we're not going to be able to simply select the correct ideas that we're, we're going to have to think again and think rigorously um, if we're if we're going to uh, come up with a, a new approach and uh, a, a, a way out of this frozen present that seems to have you know lasted now for half a century or more. Did you kind of discuss a similar topic on a recent recent zero books? Or yeah, zero squared podcast with someone talking about uh, the like the the thoughts of Naomi Klein. Um, I don't, you know, I think it's it's related. Um, it's one example of of wanting to, of turning to reason and and, and to science rather than uh, to orthodoxies um, to reexamine Naomi Klein's ideas and be skeptical of the way we think about ecology. Um, but that's just one area. This was a little more general than all of than that conversation alone, but that, that conversation would certainly fit into uh, a struggle to, to think seriously about what's required, say, to be, um, to overcome our ecological crisis. And in that, in that uh, conversation, we talked about uh, how the uh, environment and the environmental problems that we face can really only be uh, overcome through technology and and, and uh, scientific understanding, and we're not going to be able to retreat into the past and set up some sort of pristine environment. You know, basically remove ourselves from the picture. Um, we're going to have to change the way we relate to the world and, and the way we exploit the world um, and the kinds of technologies we implement to 
to produce energy and and uh, agriculture and so on. But w- w- this will be I mean advancements in technology and advancements in our understanding rather than uh, a retreat to you know our Neolithic past. So yeah, it does fit. So we were sent two books in the mail. One was after the saucers landed and in the shadows of the towers. Now these are, of course, two different types of books, one which you edited, and one, of course, is fiction by you, right? So That's right. So I'm wondering, which one do you prefer? Oh, I prefer my novel. <laughs> I mean, I think- like... Yeah, I like everyone else's. I think probably the the book that is, you know, to be, if I was objective, the book that is sure to please more readers would probably be the anthology because you have such a wide array of different writers, very talented writers in that collection uh, or in that anthology. But, um, you know, I wrote the novel and I only wrote one of the stories in the anthology. And I, you know, I'm an egotist, so I think my book <laughs> What's it like editing so many other people's works? I mean, you you have to basically live with other people's styles and stuff for such a long yeah, time. Well, you know, I didn't. I, there were only a few stories that were written for that anthology. There were a lot of reprints in that anthology. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rob McCleary and David Friedman were writers who I actually worked with to help them create their stories. Uh, and I enjoyed doing that, um, and it was, it's not difficult to, for me to read someone's work and see what I think they're doing and make some suggestions. But they were both very capable writers, and you know they took what they could from my suggestions and, and did what they thought was best as well. And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Rob McCleary, his, his story, uh, Nixon in Space, which was published back in the uh, mid-'90s. Um, made me realize that maybe I could eventually get published because if this wacko story <laughs> I might have a, a shot. Um, so, yeah, I, I was very pleased to, to work with everyone who was in that anthology, but a lot of those people had had their stories not only published but kind of recognized, like uh, um, uh, Rick uh, Bowes at the, at the beginning, his, for his story, uh, the, the the there's a hole in the city. Um, it was read on uh, national public radio, and it's been published a few times. And it, I think it's one of the the major um, speculative stories that were that's been written about and after 9/11. Um, so I was really glad to get that. And, and the same goes with Vandermeer and and the excerpt from Cory Doctorow's uh, novel and and the uh, Bruce Sterling excerpt and. And really, all of the, the stories that are in that collection, these are really masterful writers, and they're, and, and they're uh, turning their eyes towards a very you know, difficult moment and in, in, in doing their best. So I was pleased to be able to collect them. The difficulty was really finding the people who'd written well on the subject, more than right. directing them to write. Have you read much 9-11 fiction? I know I went through a phase, and I was reading this, whatever I could find... Uh, it was not something that I sought out uh, you know, in any other period, although it was out there. And I always, uh, was it, I, when I wanted to come across a story that dealt with 9-11, although it's interesting because that was a subject that, obviously, 
was you know very important to me without I and just like everyone else it was very important to all of us so um uh I was glad to put together this anthology but it's not I, I don't believe there's going to become a, a genre of 9/11 fiction in the future I think that you know maybe one or two more anthologies or a couple novels and and uh will you know will fit in somewhere else but we're not going to it's not going to become a thing into itself well, we've got a little bit on our brain because it just happened, and then, uh, as synchronicity would have it, it just kind of starts seeping in to the topics in our discussion. So we're talking about Dungeons & Dragons last week, and uh, Dungeons & Dragons spawned this movie, Mazes and, Monster, Mazes and Monsters, with Tom Hank, who happened to... The movie culminates at the top of the Twin Towers. Right, and then incredibly close and clear or present or whatever the name of that movie is also stars Tom Hanks where he jumps off the Twin Towers and his son's convinced that that's what happened to him. And Right. And I recently watched The Big Lebowski for the first time. 9-11 on the check. Yeah, yeah. What but then... Do? That was for the first time? It was the first time you watched The Big Lebowski? I know, I know. We I believe in that. nothing, Lebowski. <laughs> so, um, fun, that movie. there's that scene in where he's writing on that check and then he looks up and there's george bush on the tv screen you know senior right. and right. so it is just all this undercurrent of but speaking of which i mean being a scene kid and having your brain turned up to this you know having your free association turned up to 11 when i got your books i noticed that they're almost the same co- cover did you Ever noticed that before? No. They look very different to me. One's uh, black and white with little kind of generic stick figure, you know, restroom icon figures on the cover, and the other's uh, Twin Towers. But how are they identical, or how are they similar? Well, I don't say that they're identical. They just have the same kind of motion going through them with the disc and after the saucers landed, kind of representing the sun and the shadows of the tower. And then the beam that's kind of going down to the person with the alien is in his head would actually be the negative space of the t- the towers. Do you get what I'm saying? Oh man, yeah. I wish I had those covers right in front of me. I could see it more. But I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. Huh. I think once you see it, you probably won't be able to unsee it. It's kind of like a magic eye. But I mean, of course, they were sent to me together, so I pulled them out apart together and i was like oh well, wait a minute that's kind of creepy so you know those are two completely different artists that were employed to make those covers and they, the one probably did not look at the other yeah no contact whatsoever i imagine okay well 9-11 2001 was a tuesday um mm-hmm. but june 11th 1991 i found out on accident is also a tuesday did you design that and why June 11th, 1991, and after the saucers landed? Uh, um, because there is the, throwing all kinds there of is the, uh, the thing that 611... <laughs> no, I did not design that. I, don't, 19, I can tell you why 1991, but I can't tell you why June 11th. There's no reason why it's June 11th and, and, you know, that I'm conscious of. But I know why it was 1991, which was because that was, uh, for me, uh, uh, a big year. When I moved to Portland, I, I dropped out of college and moved to Portland. Uh, I sort of started down a road that I think of as my creative and adult life. 
so like you know i i started really focusing on trying to be a writer i didn't publish anything for many years but um uh yeah so i and i think of that as a, as a ufo time too because i i uh at that time was interested in in ufos and had friends who i will say were in the counterculture and imbibed substances and talked about the possibility of saucers and read fate magazine and UFO magazine and, and uh, Whitley Strieber's books and and looked at the sky obsessively and went a little bit insane, I think, in my early 20s there. Any experiences? Um, none while I was sober, so I'm going to say no. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. Like, it, every time somebody says, uh, oh, man, I think I saw a UFO, they go, were you drinking? So, ah, come on, you have stories. Tell stories. I was not drinking, okay? But, <laughs> I mean, I'm not only drinking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I saw was surely classifiable as hallucination. So, I will, I'm just going to leave it there. And, but I have had, at those, that was a time in my life where I felt and took seriously the notion of synchronicity. So I had a lot of uh, experiences of synchronicity around that time. Um, and, uh, you know, as I say, I was in my early 20s. I was, I was sort of trying to find my way uh, intellectually and sure spiritually and, and um, creatively. And, um, and the kinds of things I was writing then were sort of the naive wonder boy uh, version of what st- of the same thing, the kinds of things I'm writing now. It just, it, it just, uh, you know, they, it makes me cringe to look back on on the way I was talking and the kind of perspective I had. But but it was the same subject matter, you know, the same questions. Um, so yeah, that's why it was 1991. But uh, June 11th, 1991, I didn't even remember that that's that was a case, you know. So. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, you turn a six upside down, it's a nine, right? So nine eleven, nineteen ninety one. Well, t- tell us about the book. So uh, part of this is built on the idea. Th- <laughs> <laughs> the mystery is only valid unless it stays a mystery. <laughs> So yeah, the mystery is only valid if it, it stays a mystery. And so, if God appears on Earth, all of a sudden God seems less godly, too real. Right. Yeah. Have you seen the movie The Next Voice You'll You'll Hear? It stars Nancy Reagan and I don't know who else, but I think I've heard it. of it, but I haven't watched it. No. So like God talks on the radio. Oh and yes, I have. That's been forever though. Wow. Yeah, okay. The whole movie. So if you couldn't find a more cheesy premise, you know, God is reduced to a radio announcer. Maybe, it, you know, maybe a spokesperson from GE. Uh, yeah. The, if God's on Earth, then God can only be as sacred or as interesting or as or as impressive as a society in which he ap- would appear. You know, he'd have to fit into this world. And this world debases everything. So, you know, a God that is imminent would be a, a ridiculous God, a commodity God. Um, 
what we want to do is change the way we live and, and not find one, you know, being that will will do it for us. That that just won't work. Um, yeah, no, it it but it the 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 thing about that book is it's not only about uh, how the UFOs when they land, um, you know, are sort of a anticlimactic letdown for the for the ufologists and uh, but also it's um about how uh what we think we are who we think we are uh is never quite settled it's a it's a as much of a book about identity and the 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 way um our culture or our identities are are is structured to always be at one remove to sort of to to be uh, elusive um as much as it is about about the the UFO phenomenon itself, or the the the, the observation that you know th- those who take their religion literally uh, are always the the most kitschy kinds of people. Tell us about these characters, though. So there's there's Harold Flint, and then <laughs> there's another gentleman. I can't. I can't think of his name that is kind of the narrator and then the alien itself her name is Asket yeah um, and then there's this art movement called Fluxus tell us about that okay so Fluxus is a real art movement we'll start there Uh, that came out of the 60s and early 70s in in the US it was an avant-garde small scale male art art movement but it had its connections to the New York uh, avant-garde art scene. So, you know, John Cage and Yoko Ono are probably two of the biggest names um, in Fluxus. Although, you know, Cage was not only known as as a member of Fluxus, um, neither was Yoko Ono, obviously. Um, Fluxus uh, was sort of an absurdist, jokey art movement that wanted to take art out of the museums and put it into everyday life, which is a common, you know, common enough goal for avant-garde artists. Um, they uh, were, I think, uh, largely influenced by Duchamp. Um, there was an artist who was a Fluxus artist who actually canned his own shit and would sell artist shit, signing cans of his own shit. Uh, <laughs> at least that was we. No one ever opened the cans that would you know, devalue the work. So we don't know what really is in those cans, but, uh, <laughs> uh, T-value. <laughs> there, there's a lot of matchbook art and, and small like postcards and, and paper art that was, would be mailed to one another, uh, in the fluxus movement. Um, conceptual art has ties to fluxus. Um, so guys like Joseph Kozeth, um, uh, are sort of indebted to to Fluxus, and I decided that the, the main ufologist in the book, um, a fictional character named Harold Flint, would be sort of an amalgam of uh, different Fluxus artists, as well as um, uh, Bud Hopkins, who's uh, an artist ufologist who I mm. I talked to and read when he was alive. I, I interviewed him for my podcast. A few years before he died, or maybe a year or so before he died, and, and um, found him to be an interesting character. The, the narrator um, is based on, well, he's probably the most autobiographical character in, in, in the book. 
uh, a writer and uh, and uh, an experimental writer. Um, but he's also based on uh, B.S. Johnson, so he's he's practically got B.S. Johnson's name, Brian Johnson. B.S. Johnson was a British avant-garde writer who died in 1971 by his own hand, um, but he'd written books where he would do things like cut holes and you know have the books produced so that there would be holes in some pages, so you'd have to you could look ahead and read what was going to happen next. So what would, what would be happening two or three pages later? would be incorporated into what was happening now uh, in the book, uh, trying to uh, develop a new way of treating time in literature. Uh, he uh, was dedicated to the notion that most fictional uh, approaches, or basically most approaches to writing fiction were just ways of lying and, and artificially structuring reality. So he, would, he wanted to get as close to the truth as possible so he published an, another book where there was no beginning, middle, and end to the book. There was a beginning to the book, then the pages in between the beginning and the end could be rearranged in any order. You would get the book in a box rather than bound in book form, and you would be able to just choose and rearrange which section of the book you wanted to read, read next. It didn't matter. The, the, there was no linear story to the book, except for there being a, a starting point and an ending point. Um, and that was a book called The Unfortunates. Uh, so yeah, so that those were some of the influences on on me as I was writing the book. Uh, and then Ask It is actually the name of a real fake alien who really didn't visit Billy Meyer. Um, Billy Meyer being a, probably the most hokey mm-hmm. hoaxer uh, in the UFO world. He... he uh, claimed to be visited by the Pleiadians and um, who were these Nordic-type aliens who were here to spread brotherly love and the New Age philosophy of, of the cosmos. And uh, he had some wonderful, and still has, I think he's still around, he had some wonderful fake UFO photos of flying hubcaps and things that, were, that he would publish. Um, That's the ones that were always like stuck in the trees or whatever. Yeah, right? they'd be like stuck in the tree or, or like a the top of a wedding cake that's hovering over a car, that kind of thing. Yeah. Did you did you have you seen Harry Kunzru's uh, Men Without Gods? I have not. It's, is, is that it's a, a documentary or no? It's a it's a book, and he kind of took this one of those type cult situations where they're set up around like the Pleiadians. In the desert, but it does such a nice job of creating this idea of belief that completely collapses by the end. Yeah, well, that's that's. I mean, in my book, after the saucers landed, that happens. But the way that they fall apart is that they turn out to be entirely real. I mean, that the the, the to go back to the beginning of this conversation, um, the experiences as they're told to us, if they were real would be mundane. Exactly. You know, so uh, the the experiences of the Space Brothers, I mean, if they landed and they were exactly as Billy Meyer explained to me, I wouldn't want anything to do with them, no more to do with them than I want to do with Jehovah's Witnesses, deal with the Jehovah's Witnesses that come to my house, you know. They're full of pretty pretty platitudes, or not that pretty of platitudes, and, and 
sort of silly nonsense ideas. And um, uh, if the grays were real, well, we would just have to develop, you know, better weapons. It would just be more, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, like they'd be like sharks out there. We'd, we'd have to try to learn to protect ourselves. But there'd be no grand spiritual revelation if these, these aliens were, were real. It's only by keeping some portion of it strictly in the you know in the realm of fantasy and, and in the dark that the feeling of, of significance sort of maintains. I mean it's true with a lot of mystic visions. I remember listening to Jason Horsley describe a mystical vision that he'd had during a an encounter with uh, John DeRuiter, who was this guru in Canada. I think that's I'm getting his name right. I may be misremembering the guru's name and impugning some innocent man, but in any case he was uh, describing a vision he had of meeting with, uh, you know, like the god of Pan and, and some bearded Nordic type and seeing flames shoot out of an owl's eye or something. And I thought, you know, if you saw these things in, in reality, if these things were in front of you, you would think, well, this is, you know, a really kitschy, you know, laser show. It's just this is just a. This could be not. This could be more stereotypical. I've already seen Clash of the Titans. Why do I need to have this mystical vision? <laughs> this is, but because um, these these images, which are, you know, iconic and and uh, they resonate with our unconscious. They only resonate with our unconscious as long as they're not literal. As long as they hold back some sort of metaphoric content but as soon as they just you know oh yeah there really is a an owl that shoots fire out of its eyes and you know it can come down and turn your hair white it's like well yeah i want to stay away from that owl <laughs> you know it's not it doesn't it wouldn't to be literal it's not to, to hold on to that meaning you've got me thinking about 9-11 now and just oh really what the because that was kind of a day where fantasy was made literal on some level also yeah, I wonder what that did to our psyches, as far as Truman Show. Yeah, yeah. Well, it what it I don't know what it did to our psyches precisely, but one of the issues I raise in the beginning of that book, and one of the things I was thinking about as I collected the stories for that anthology, was that the events of nine eleven did take some of our dystopic nightmare images from, say, B-movies or movies like the Independence Day, say, and bring them to the streets of New York. And um, it, it challenged us then to, to find new ways to imagine uh, both dystopias and utopias. It, it, it challenged us to come up with new artificial dreams so that we could you know, hold on to meaning. Um, and not not lose our way because I think that uh, it's important for us to have you know these imaginary realms that we partially occupy. But once they are literal, then then they lose all the, much of their power. Um, so you know, if you put the fear and the hatred that 9/11 inspired aside, and just think of it on the on the level of myth and art. Um, some artists called the events of 9/11 the greatest artwork that had ever been made, which, of course, wow. 
made this man a pariah. The point is that um, you know it did it it did debase our 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 Hollywood imaginations. It 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 sort of uh, literalized them and realized them in, in a way that uh, robbed those images of their significance and and made them sort of vile. I mean that that's why you know after nine eleven there was all these pop songs that we could no longer play on the radio or Clear Channel thought we couldn't and they, you know, the movies that were coming out had to have the Twin Towers erased from the it's like a Stalinist purge of the imagery of uh, of uh, the Twin Towers from the Spider-Man movie and a whole bunch of other movies and um, and the movies that didn't have that uh, done to them and they, they weren't remastered to eliminate our, our collective memory are sort of eerie now and a little creepy. Um, so what we did, I think, is we, uh, you know, we turned to synchronicities and to our own popular culture to, and, and to movies like The Big Lebowski to to try to give mystery back to the the mundane events of of terror. Well, that was forty two minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Take us out, Will. To our listeners, you've been listening to Douglas Lane on Thinkbook Radio, a production of thethinkbook.com. Information about the work of Lane can be found at douglaslane.com. For more information about the Thinkbook, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website, thethinkbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Thinkbook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thethinkbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And you've got everything backwards. I'm not here as an alien at all. I'm not with them. <laughs>